Jeff, why am I always out? Ludicrous, did you say? Play rollout? What? No, Jeff, order more. Finding directions to nearest diamond store. Shop for Jeff. Hip hop for kids. Buy Jeff peanut butter. Got it. Adding Jeff to your cart. Yeah, now we're talking. Jeff peanut butter. It's that Jiffing good. Ludicrous confused his voice assistant for it. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Stories for the Road. This is your host, John Hagedorn. Today, chapters 6, 7, and 8 from H.G. Wells's The War of the Worlds. And now, chapter 6, The Heat Ray in the Chabam Road. It was still a matter of wonder how the Martians are able to slay men so swiftly and so silently. Many think that in some way they were able to generate an intense heat in a chamber of practically absolute non-conductivity. This intense heat they project in a parallel beam against any object they choose, by means of a polished parabolic mirror of unknown composition, much as the parabolic mirror of a lighthouse projects a beam of light. But no one has absolutely proved these details. However it is done, it is certain that a beam of heat is the essence of the matter. Heat, and invisible, instead of visible light. Whatever is combustible flashes into flame at its touch. Lead runs like water. It softens iron. "'cracks and melts glass, and when it falls upon water, "'incontinently, that explodes into steam. "'That night nearly forty people lay under the starlight about the pit, "'charred and distorted beyond recognition, "'and all night long the common from Horsell to Mayberry "'was deserted and brightly ablaze. "'The news of the massacre probably reached Chobham, "'Woking, and Ottershaw about the same time. "'In Woking the shops had closed when the tragedy happened, "'and a number of people, shop people and so forth, "'attracted by the stories they had heard, "'were walking over the Horsell Bridge "'and along the road between the hedges "'that runs out at last upon the common. "'You may imagine the young people "'brushed up after the labors of the day, "'and making this novelty, "'as they would make any novelty, "'the excuse for walking together "'and enjoying a trivial flirtation. "'You may figure to yourself "'the hum of voices along the road in the gloaming. "'As yet, of course, "'few people in Woking even knew "'that the cylinder had opened.' though poor Henderson had sent a messenger on a bicycle to the post office with a special wire to an evening paper. As these folks came out by twos and threes upon the open, they found little knots of people talking excitedly and peering at the spinning mirror over the sand pits, and soon the newcomers were, no doubt, soon infected by the excitement of the occasion. By half-past eight, when the deputation was destroyed, there may have been a crowd of three hundred people or more at this place, "'besides those who had left the road to approach the Martians nearer. "'There were three policemen, too, one of whom was mounted, "'doing their best, under instructions from Stent, "'to keep the people back and deter them from approaching the cylinder. 
there was some booing from those more thoughtless and excitable souls to whom a crowd is always an occasion for noise and horseplay. Stent and Ogilvy, anticipating some possibilities of a collision, had telegraphed from Horsell to the barracks as soon as the Martians emerged, for the help of a company of soldiers to protect these strange creatures from violence. After that they returned to lead that ill-fated advance. The description of their death, as it was seen by the crowd, tallies very closely with my own impressions. The three puffs of green smoke, the deep humming note, and the flashes of flame. But that crowd of people had a far narrower escape than mine. Only the fact that a hummock of heathery sand intercepted the lower part of the heat ray saved them. Had the elevation of the parabolic mirror been a few yards higher, none could have lived to tell the tale. They saw the flashes and the men falling, and an invisible hand, as it were, lit the bushes as it hurried towards them through the twilight. Then, with a whistling note that rose above the droning of the pit, the beam swung close over their heads, lighting the tops of the beech trees that lined the road, and splitting the bricks, smashing the windows, firing the window frames, and bringing down in crumbling ruin a portion of the gable of the house nearest the corner. In the sudden thud, hiss, and glare of the igniting trees, the panic-stricken crowd seemed to have swayed hesitatingly for some moments. Sparks and burning twigs began to fall into the road, and single leaves like puffs of flame. Hats and dresses caught fire. Then came a crying from the common. There were shrieks and shouts, and suddenly a mounted policeman came galloping to the confusion with his hands clasped over his head, screaming. "'They're coming!' a woman shrieked, and incontinently everyone was turning and pushing at those behind in order to clear their way to Woking again. They must have bolted as blindly as a flock of sheep. When the road goes narrow and black between the high banks, the crowd jammed, and a desperate struggle ensued. All that crowd did not escape. Three persons at least, two women and a little boy, were crushed and trampled there, and left to die amid the terror and the darkness. We'll return with Chapter 7, right after these sponsor messages. Hi, everyone. The holiday season is upon us, and I'll be glued to the telly for BritBox on many a night. I've already shared with you the fact that I keep up with Father Brown and Poirot at BritBox. I also check out their new stuff, like the new series Archie, which tells the story of Archie Leach, otherwise known to millions of filmgoers as Cary Grant. This story comes from his daughter Jennifer Grant and ex-wife Diane Cannon. It's a series. The performance of Jason Isaacs, who plays Cary Grant, is top-notch. I highly recommend it. You can only find it on my favorite TV, BritBox. Sign up to BritBox today to stream Archie and other fan favorites today from any device. I have a special limited-time offer for my U.S. and Canadian listeners. Get 50% off your first month when you sign up for a monthly plan, but only if you go to BritBox.com and use my promo code 1001STORIES at checkout. Don't wait. Get 50% off your first month. Just use promo code 1001STORIES at BritBox.com. Try it. You'll like it. Chronic migraine is 15 or more headache days a month, each lasting four hours or more. Botox, onabotulinum toxin A, prevents headaches in adults with chronic migraine. It's not for adults with migraine with 14 or fewer headache days a month. It prevents, on average, eight to nine headache days a month versus six to seven for placebo. 
Prescription Botox is injected by your doctor. Effects of Botox may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness can be signs of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Side effects may include allergic reactions, neck and injection site pain, fatigue, and headache. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Don't receive Botox if there's a skin infection. Tell your doctor your medical history, muscle or nerve conditions, including ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia gravis or Lambert-Eaton syndrome, and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. Ask your doctor and visit BotoxChronicMigraine.com or call 1-800-44-BOTOX to learn more. And now, Chapter 7, How I Reached Home. For my own part, I remember nothing of my flight except the stress of blundering against trees and stumbling through the heather. All about me gathered the invisible terrors of the Martians. That pitiless sword of heat seemed whirling to and fro, flourishing overhead before it descended and smote me out of life. I came into the road between the crossroads and Horsell, and ran along this to the crossroads. At last I could go no further. I was exhausted with the violence of my emotion and of my flight, and I staggered and fell by the wayside. That was near the bridge that crosses the canal where the gas works. I fell and lay still. I must have remained there some time. I sat up, strangely perplexed. For a moment, perhaps, I could not clearly understand how I came there. My terror had fallen from me like a garment. My hat had gone, and my collar had burst away from its fastener. A few minutes before, there had only been three real things before me. The immensity of the night and space and nature, my own feebleness and anguish, and the near approach of death. Now it was as if something turned over, and the point of view altered abruptly. There was no sensible transition from one state of mind to the other. I was immediately the self of every day again, a decent, ordinary citizen. The silent common, the impulse of my flight, the starting flames, were as if they had been in a dream. I asked myself, had these latter things indeed happened? I could not credit it. I rose and walked unsteadily up the steep incline of the bridge. My mind was blank wonder. My muscles and nerves seemed drained of their strength. I dare say I staggered drunkenly. A head rose over the arch, and the figure of a workman carrying a basket appeared. Beside him ran a little boy. He passed me, wishing me good night. I was minded to speak to him, but did not. I answered his greeting with a meaningless mumble and went on over the bridge. Over the Mayberry Arch a train, a billowing tumult of white, firelit smoke, and a long caterpillar of lighted windows went flying south. Clatter, clatter, clap, rap and had gone. A dim group of people talked in the gate of one of the houses in the pretty little row of gables that was called Oriental Terrace. It was all so real and so familiar. And that behind me? It was frantic, fantastic. Such things, I told myself, couldn't be. Perhaps I am a man of exceptional moods. I do not know how far my experience is common. At times I suffer from the strangest sense of detachment from myself and the world about me. I seemed to watch it all from the outside, from somewhere inconceivably remote, out of time, out of space, out of the stress and tragedy of it all. This feeling was very strong upon me that night. Here was another side to my dream. But the trouble was the blank incongruity of this serenity and the swift death flying yonder, not two miles away. There was a noise of business from the gasworks, and the electric lamps were all alight. I stopped at the group of people. "'What news from the common?' said I. "'There were two men and a woman at the gate.' "'Eh? 
said one of the men, turning. "'What news from the common?' I said. "'Ain't you just been there?' asked the men. "'People seem fair silly about the common,' said the woman over the gate. "'What's it all about?' "'Haven't you heard of the men from Mars?' said I. "'The creatures from Mars?' "'Quite enough,' said the woman over the gate. "'Thanks!' And all three of them laughed. I felt foolish and angry. I tried and found I could not tell them what I had seen. They laughed again at my broken sentences. "'You'll hear more yet,' I said, and went on to my home. I startled my wife at the doorway, so haggard was I. I went into the dining room, sat down, drank some wine, and so soon as I could collect myself, sufficiently I told you the things I had seen. The dinner, which was a cold one, had already been served, and remained neglected on the table while I told my story. "'There is one thing,' I said, to allay the fears I had aroused. "'They are the most sluggish things I ever saw crawl. "'They may keep the pit and kill people who come near them, "'but they cannot get out of it. "'But the horror of them—' "'Don't, dear,' said my wife, "'knitting her brows and putting her hand on mine. "'Poor Ogilvy,' I said, "'to think he may be lying dead there.' "'My wife at least did not find my experience incredible.' but when I saw how deadly white her face was, I ceased abruptly. "'They may come here,' she said again, and then again, and repeated it. I pressed her to take wine, and tried to reassure her. "'They can scarcely move,' I said. I began to comfort her and myself by repeating all that Ogilvy had told me of the impossibility of the Martians establishing themselves on the earth. In particular, I laid stress on the gravitational difficulty.' On the surface of the Earth, the force of gravity is three times what it is on the surface of Mars. A Martian, therefore, would weigh three times more than on Mars, albeit his muscular strength would be the same. His own body would be a cope of lead to him, therefore. That, indeed, was the general opinion. Both the Times and the Daily Telegraph, for instance, insisted on it the next morning, and both overlooked, just as I did, two obvious modifying influences. The atmosphere of the Earth, we now know, contains far more oxygen and far less argon, whichever way one likes to put it, than does Mars. The invigorating influence of this excess of oxygen upon the Martians indisputably did much to counterbalance the increased weight of their bodies. And in the second place, we all overlooked the fact that such mechanical intelligence as the Martian possessed was quite able to dispense with muscular exertion at a pinch. But I did not consider these points at the time and so my reasoning was dead against the chances of the invaders. With wine and food, the confidence of my own table, and the necessity of reassuring my wife, I grew by insensible degrees courageous and secure. "'They have done a foolish thing,' said I, fingering my wine glass. "'They are dangerous because, no doubt, they are mad with terror. Perhaps they expected to find no living things, certainly no intelligent living things.' "'A shell in the pit,' said I, if the worst comes to worst, we'll kill them all. The intense excitement of the events had no doubt left my perceptive powers in a state of erethism. I remember that dinner table with extraordinary vividness even now, my dear wife's sweet anxious face peering at me from under the pink lampshade, the white cloth with its silver and glass table furniture, for in those days even philosophical writers had many little luxuries. The crimson-purple wine in my glass, are photographically distinct to me now. At the end of it I sat, tempering nuts with a cigarette, regretting Ogilvy's rashness, 
and denouncing the short-sighted timidity of the Martians. And so some respectable dodo in the Mauritius might have lorded it in his nest and discussed the arrival of that ship full of pitiless sailors in want of animal food, saying, We will peck them to death tomorrow, my dear. I did not know it, but that was the last civilized dinner I was to eat for very many strange and terrible days. Chapter 8 Friday Night The most extraordinary thing to my mind, of all the strange and wonderful things that happened upon that Friday, was the dovetailing of the commonplace habits of our social order with the first beginnings of a series of events that was to topple that social order headlong. If on Friday night you had taken a pair of compasses and drawn a circle with a radius of five miles round the Woking sandpits, I doubt if you would have had one human being outside it, unless it were some relation of stent or of the three or four cyclists or London people lying dead on the common, whose emotions or habits were at all affected by the newcomers. Many people had heard of the cylinder, of course, and talked about it in their leisure, but it certainly did not make the sensation that an ultimatum to Germany would have done. In London that night, poor Henderson's telegram describing the gradual unscrewing of the shot was judged to be a canard, and his evening paper, after wiring for authentication from him and receiving no reply, the man was killed, decided not to print a special edition. Even within the five-mile circle, the great majority of people were inert. I have already described the behavior of the men and women to whom I spoke. All over the district, people were dining and supping. Working men were gardening after the labors of the day. Children were being put to bed. Young people were wandering through the lanes lovemaking. Students sat over their books. Maybe there was a murmur in the village streets, a novel and dominant topic in the public houses, and here and there a messenger, or even an eyewitness of the later occurrences, caused a whirl of excitement, a shouting, and a running to and fro. But for the most part, the daily routine of working, eating, drinking, sleeping, went on as it had done for countless years, as though no planet Mars existed in the sky. Even at Woking Station and Horsell and Chobham, that was the case. In Woking Junction, until a late hour, trains were stopping and going on, others were shunting on the sidings, passengers were alighting and waiting, and everything was proceeding in the most ordinary way. A boy from the town, trenching on Smith's Monopoly, was selling papers with the afternoon news. A ringing impact of trucks, the sharp whistle of the engines from the junction, mingled with their shouts of men from Mars, get your copy now. Excited men came into the station about nine o'clock with incredible tidings and caused no more disturbance than drunkards might have done. People rattling London words peered into the darkness outside the carriage windows and saw only a rare, flickering, vanishing spark dance up from the direction of Horsell, a red glow and a thin veil of smoke driving across the stars, and thought that nothing more serious than a heath fire was happening. It was only round the edge of the common that any disturbance was perceptible. There were half a dozen villas burning on the Woking border. There were lights in all the houses on the common side of the three villages, and the people there kept awake till dawn. A curious crowd lingered restlessly, people coming and going, but the crowd remaining, both on the Chobham and Horsell bridges. One or two adventurous souls, it was afterwards found, went into the darkness and crawled quite near the Martians, but they never returned. "'for now and again a light ray, "'like the beam of a warship searchlight, "'swept the commons, "'and the heat ray was ready to follow. "'Save for such, 
"'That big area of common was silent and desolate, "'and the charred bodies lay about on it all night under the stars, "'and all the next day. "'A noise of hammering from the pit was heard by many people. "'So you now have the state of things on Friday night. "'In the center, sticking into the skin of our old planet Earth "'like a poison dart, was this cylinder. "'But the poison was scarcely working yet. "'Around it was a patch of silent common, "'smoldering in places, and with a few dark, "'dimly seen objects lying in contorted attitudes here and there. "'Here and there was a burning bush or tree. "'Beyond was a fringe of excitement, "'and farther than that fringe the inflammation had not crept as yet. "'In the rest of the world the stream of life still flowed "'as it had flowed for immemorial years. "'The fever of war that would presently clog vein and artery, "'deaden nerve and destroy brain, had still to develop.' All night long the Martians were hammering and stirring, sleepless, indefatigable, at work upon the machines they were making ready, and ever and again a puff of greenish-white smoke whirled up to the starlit sky. At about eleven a company of soldiers came through Horsell, and deployed along the edge of the common to form a cordon. Later a second company marched through Chobham to deploy on the north side of the common. Several officers from the Inkerman barracks had been on the common earlier in the day, and one, Major Eden, was reported to be missing. The colonel of the regiment came to the Chalbum Bridge and was busy questioning the crowd at midnight. The military authorities were certainly alive to the seriousness of the business. About eleven, the next morning's papers were able to say, a squadron of hussars, two maxims, and about four hundred men of the Cardigan Regiment started from Aldershot. A few seconds after midnight, the crowd in the Churchy Road, woking, saw a star fall from heaven into the pine woods to the northwest. It had a greenish color, and caused a silent brightness like summer lightning. This was the second cylinder. Join us next week Sunday night for Chapter 9, The Fighting Begins. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn. Everyone, stay safe, and we'll be back soon. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.